with that being said, uh, I want to kind of jump, jump into our time. If you are new, there are some uh, Connect cards in the chairs before you. Fill one out, leave it in the offering basket or in the Connect area. We'd love to hang out and meet you. Uh, if you need a Bible, there are also in the chairs before you. And uh, I think that's, that's really it. That's, that's as far as my rant goes. Um, again, if you just got here, we're in Jonah chapter 3. We're walking through this short series in the book of Jonah titled, A Heart Revealed and the Grace of God. And we're surely going to get into that this morning. I want to start our time by, by telling you a story, uh, something that happened to me this week. Earlier this week, uh, my dad had uh, hip replacement surgery. Uh, he had surgery on Monday. He was out in Harlingen, and so he, out, uh, he had surgery on Monday. My brother is telling all of us uh, about the surgery, and he's saying he's going to go in at 2. He should be good to go at 4. It's a quick surgery, not that bad, kind of common. We're good to go. All of my brothers and I were like, cool, keep us up to date. In the surgery, he experienced some minor complications that uh, resulted in him, uh, what was supposed to be a two-hour surgery ended up being an almost five-hour surgery. Um, and in the midst of him having this five-hour surgery, he ended up losing a lot of blood. And so Tuesday morning, we get the call from, one of my, from my eldest brother. We get the call, and he's like, hey, man, dad's out of surgery. He's good to go. It was kind of normal in terms of the blood loss, uh, but he's good. He's ready. He's going to be recovering. Uh, the doc says he wants him walking sometime today. Um, and said, okay, that's great. That's awesome. Tuesday morning, I had a couple of appointments in the morning. Two of them were canceled. And so I decided to go to Harlingen to go see my dad because I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to. So I took the opportunity, and I go see my pops, right? And so as I'm going to Harlingen, I'm also calling my eldest brother. Uh, his name is Meme. I don't want to keep saying eldest brother. So his name is Meme, right? And so I call Meme and I said, hey, are you going to be going to Harlingen? And he says, yeah, mom and I are going to be going over there. We'll meet you there. We're on our way. So as I'm driving to Harlingen, I'm going into Valley Baptist. And as I'm getting in, I see my pops. He's eating lunch. He's like just hanging out. And all I could think about is, when is my brother going to get here? Because I'm going to spend one-on-one -on -one time with my dad, and our relationship is a little dicey, and uh, when is my brother going to get here? And so as I walk into the room, I sit down next to my dad, and uh, he starts telling me about the surgery. And so when it comes to like this kind of stuff, especially when it comes to surgeries and like complications, like my pops is one of those dudes that like don't care, uh, in the sense of like, yeah, it's normal, it happens. Like it's yeah, I lost some blood. They're going to put it back in. Not a big deal. Like, I got a new hip. Cool. Like, he's, he's just that guy. He's the kind of guy that really, like, I, don't, I, I generally don't know what all he's afraid of. But, but when it comes to moments like these, yeah, he's just very practical. He's very objective about those moments. Um, he's like the kind of guy that, I, like, I wish my story was like him. You know what I mean? Like, he accomplished more in a shorter period of time than I have in my entire life. Right? He's, he's the kind of guy that was like, yeah, I was in high school, uh, finished high school, went to college, wasn't for me, dropped out, got drafted in Nam, came home, managed some businesses, then decided to go to school and be an educator for 50 years. No big deal. Like, um, and to him, like, that's just, that was life. Whatevs. So I'm talking to my pops, and it gets kind of quiet. I'm like, where's my brother? Like, where's Mimi at? And so it gets quiet. And as it gets quiet, my dad outstretches his hand or reaches his hand out, and he says, hey, would you pray for me? And so my pops tells me, you know, go ahead and pray. And in that moment, like, I hated that he reached out his hand. Like, I was going to hold my dad's hand. Like, that for me was already awkward enough. And so I hold my dad's hand. And, uh, and so I go into this prayer that I really didn't want to pray. And so as I begin to pray, I start asking God to assure my dad of this season of recovery. Thanks for the doctors. Thanks for watching over my dad. Um, and then I give what is this very, like, practical, 50,000-foot view of the gospel-type prayer. I'm like, God, would you reveal yourself to my father in this season of recovery? Good to go. Amen. Right? And so I let go of my dad's hand. I was like, yep, all right, good. We're good. And, uh, and so my dad's like, hey, thanks for that. The nurse comes in. She's like, Mr. DeLeon, we're going to hook you up to this blood IV. You'll be good to go in two hours. And so I move, and I'm sitting down. So they're hooking him up. And then my pops goes on to say, you know, I really screwed it up with you and your brothers. And I don't know what I've done. He says, uh, he goes, I know I've screwed it up with your brothers. I want to know what I've done so that you can forgive me, right? And in that moment, I'm just hating this. 
in that moment, it's an opportunity for me to tell my pops, like, to be candid with them, but to also say, I love you and I forgive you. Let me tell you about someone who is bigger than this kind of forgiveness. Let me tell you about Jesus. I want to tell you that's what I did. But what I really did was I punked out and I said, that's cool, dad, you're forgiven. And in that moment, Memes shows up and he says, hey, do you want to go out to eat? I was like, yes, please. And I booked it, right? Like I was ready to go. And in that moment, as I reflected on it, or better yet, as I reflected on it throughout the rest of the week, I realized that you could call some of what I did obedience, but it was reluctant obedience. I didn't want to do the things. I did the things because I was supposed to do the things. And in addition to that, my pops' response to my prayer and his response to his own personal conviction, he's teaching me about confession. And he's teaching me about ownership. And selfishly, I just didn't want to hear it. And so this morning, as we look at Jonah 3, not only are we going to see him get sent back to Nineveh, not only are we going to see God at work in and through these Ninevites, we're going to come to learn a couple of things. Namely, that God is going to accomplish his will with or without you. He's going to accomplish his will whether you like it or not. And he's going to accomplish his will for his purpose and his glory alone. The question is, are we going to serve him like John or Judas? That's the question. Because the truth is, like in that moment when I prayed for my pops, maybe God's going to use that. Maybe God's going to do something. I don't know. All I know is that I punked out. In our time, I usually give you our main idea for, for the sermon. So here's, here's the main idea. If you hear nothing else, hope you hear this. The main idea is that God responds to repentance. And as a result, we're going to look at the grace of God. We're going to look at the grace of God in his response. We're going to look at the grace of God in repentance. And specifically, we're going to walk through 10 truths about the grace of God. So, if you got your Bibles, we're going to start in Jonah 3. This is the word of God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out, against, uh, call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish." When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. God, as we come before you uh, in worship, not just a, a time of our service time, but as we come before you in worship, Lord, I pray that our hearts will have been primed and prepped as a result of the singing of songs and hymns. God, I pray that our hearts would be primed and prepped to hear your word, that you would not only meet us where we are, but that you would reveal yourself to us as a result of us looking to your word. God, I pray that those who know Jesus would come to know Jesus better, that your grace would not just be a comfort, but also a conviction. 
God, those who don't know you, I pray that they would come to know you, not through the faithful preacher, but through the faithful King of Kings. Holy Spirit, I pray that you uh, would be at work in us and that you would be present. And the truth is you already are present, but we're just submitting that invitation to you. God, I thank you for my friends and family here this morning, and I pray this time would glorify you, that I would be set aside, and that it would be you at work. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's the big picture. Here's what's happening, and then we're just going to walk through this list of 10 truths concerning the grace of God. The big idea is last week when we finished chapter 2, we see that Jonah gets vomited out by this fish, and then what we see here at the start of chapter 3 is that God tells Jonah, okay, good to go. Your heart's better, right? I've seen you repent. I need you to go back to Nineveh, right? It wasn't like, oh man, hey, good job. You repented. That's really what I wanted. You're free to do whatever it is you want, right? Like, don't worry about Joppa. Don't worry about Tarshish, right? Like, that's not what happened. He's telling him, like, great, man, your heart is humbled. I need you to go and do what I originally told you to do. I need you to go to Nineveh. I need you to go to Nineveh and preach repentance. And so what we see is that Jonah walks into Nineveh. Essentially, he is parachuting into Nineveh that we know about. It's just him, and he's kind of scared, and he has some reasons for it to be kind of scary. We'll talk about that in just a minute. He has some reasons for this job, this mission, this call to be kind of scary, kind of overwhelming. And so he goes into Nineveh, and he preaches in the Hebrew language a five-word sermon. It's basically, I need you to repent. That's all he really says in the Hebrew language. And then people come to know God and people actually repent. And I could tell you about ver- uh, chapter four where he's actually upset at that. We'll talk about that next week. But here's the first thing that I want you to know in light of the Ninevites uh, repenting of their sin. The first thing is that the grace of God provides hope for anyone. This is going to set up all the rest of the nine truths that we have to unpack this morning. And this is kind of an overall, that the grace of God provides hope for anyone. Let me tell you a little bit about the Ninevites with an illustration. When you're coming back from out of town, whether you hung out in Falfurias or you were in San Antonio or Austin or wherever it is you're at, and you're going down 281, there is this change in the road between Brooks County and Hidalgo County. You guys know what I'm talking about? There's this little dip, right? You can tell that the valley made it. And so there's this little dip in there. And so as you're driving south and you cross over this little uh, division, right, uh, all of a sudden you start to see all of these palm trees, right? You see all of these palm trees when you can turn back and look at Brooks County and there's, there's no palm trees, right? But you look into Hidalgo County and there are all of these palm trees going down the road and they don't end. They just keep going. You get into North Edinburgh and there are literally clusters of palm trees everywhere. And that's like everybody's marketing piece, right? Come to the city of Palms, come to Palms Crossing, look at this palm subdivision. Like that's the big thing about the valley, all of these palm trees that might I add aren't even native to the valley. Anyway, with that being said, right, just like when you're headed south on 281 and you cross into Hidalgo County and you see all of these palm trees, it's like when you cross into Nineveh, you see all of these people impaled, right? That went dark super fast, right? Because the Ninevites were known for their horrific violence, Not only would they impale their people to make examples out of them, they would also impale their enemies as a warning to their enemies. Hey, if you're going to be coming into Nineveh, this is what's going to be happening, right? Like before it went dark, it was like, hey, you know you're in the valley when you start seeing those palm trees, right? Now we change the the, the coin and we go super dark. It's like, hey, you know you're in Nineveh when you see all of these people impaled, set as examples, this is the city that, that, that Jonah was called to go and preach repentance to. So, so he has like some reservation. He has some reservation about it. Nevertheless, the first point is that the grace of God provides hope for anyone. These people who have gone down in the pages of history as some of the most, some of the most violent and vile and horrific crime, uh, uh, war crimes, committed the most horrific of war crimes, 
go down in the pages of redemptive history as people who turn from their sin and place their trust in God. With that being said, let's make it personal. Because we can look at the pages of Scripture and we can look at Jonah preaching to the Ninevites and we can say from the comfort of our house or the comfort of even our coffee shop or here at, at the incubator, we could look at that with comfort and say, oh, praise God that they turned from their evil way. Praise God that they repented. Good for the Ninevites. But now let's make it personal as redemptive grace applies to the one who belongs to Jesus. That you have been given grace It wasn't something that you achieved, but it was something that you received. And in addition to that, just because you haven't impaled anybody doesn't make you better than the Ninevites. That you are a standing example and testimony of God's redemptive grace. So, this first point, that the grace of God provides hope for anyone, starts us off with a question. And the question is, Who have you written off? Who have you written off? One of the things that we learn in Jonah, or we learn from Jonah, is that he has this, perhaps this mentality of us versus them. Us being God's people, them being the people who hate God. And that's exactly who he's called to preach repentance to. When we observe and examine the question, who have you written off, that includes you. Who have you written off? Listen to 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 13 and 14. Yet the Lord, the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways. He's speaking specifically to his people. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to us. Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. I sent you prophets to go and preach repentance. I sent them to you to go and proclaim the hope that is coming, the Messiah that will be here. It is the same thing that Paul is preaching, repent and repent. And he continues, but they would not listen, but they were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. At some point, one of the dangers that we make as Christians is we go from, uh, man, receiving God's grace, and man, we, maybe we want to proclaim all the excellencies of, uh, of, of Christ. We go from there to making it about us. And that we're special because we've received grace. And that our faith becomes private. It is personal, but it is not private. And that we hold grace from people because they are them. And we withhold grace from others because they just won't get it. And we withhold grace from others because really we're just bitter that God might actually do something really good. And in 2 Kings we see God challenging his people. He says, I sent you prophets. I gave you my word. I gave you my commandments. I've given you everything that you need. And their hearts turned stubborn, arrogant, and prideful because they desired to withhold grace. Who have you written off? Because the grace of God provides hope for anyone. How is that true? You're here. Number two, the grace of God accomplishes God's will. Look at verse two through three, or through four. Better yet, I'm lying. Verses three through four. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. This is after God told him to go back. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. That's something really important. Jonah began to go into the city, and he called out, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The grace of God accomplishes God's will. Here's what we need to understand about that statement. When we understand, when we understand the grace of God, our hearts are revealed. When we understand the grace of God, our hearts are revealed. 
Think about it. God told Jonah, go and preach repentance. Chapter three should look like chapter one. Like chapter three should be chapter one. You know what I'm saying? Like it wasn't him, like he shouldn't have been running. Nevertheless, what we see here in verses three through four is that Jonah's reluctant obedience, just like my failure, isn't measured by his performance. That God's grace accomplishing his own will isn't measured by our performance, but is measured by our faithfulness. And when we understand that, our hearts are revealed in front of us. It's not a surprise. Like, I didn't walk away from that conversation with my pops thinking that it was all good. I walked away saying, finally, I did what I was supposed to. Good to go, right? That's Jonah's attitude in this. Hey, I preached repentance. I need you to repent. He did those things. I'm good to go, right? Like, I'm done. Even in the midst of our reluctant obedience, even in the midst of our failure, God's grace accomplishes his will. God's grace accomplishes his will. The question is, are we going to serve him like a John or are we going to serve him like a Judas? Number three, the grace of God humbles sinners. Look at verse five. Actually, let me move this. Sweat drops are falling on it. I'm just passionate. The grace of God humbles sinners. Verse five. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The grace of God humbles sinners and we see them demonstrate that humility. I want you to look at three things that they did. Remember, this is the pagans. These are the pagans who are demonstrating confession and repentance. It's not Jonah. This is the pagans. I want you to look at three things from verse five. The first one is that they believed. And the people of Nineveh believed God. The word believed in verse five translates to immediacy. Like, they heard the word of God and they're like, oh my gosh, that's me, I'm a sinner, I need to turn from my way and trust in God alone. Believed came with urgency and it came immediately. The second thing that we see from the pagans is that they fasted. When we look through the pages of scripture, fasting is something that the people of God do to humble themselves before God in their time of devotion. Eventually, we even see the king issue a citywide fast. He's like, I don't want you to eat. I don't want you to drink. I don't even want you to feed your animals. I don't want your animals like eating. I don't want your animals feeding. Like this is redemption across the whole city. Like we all need to be humbled before God. The third thing that we see is that they covered themselves in sackcloth. The king does the same thing and he just sits in the ashes. Sackcloth was, uh, think of it, an illustration of mourning. They were actually grieved over their sin. That their conviction produced grief. And when they covered themselves in sackcloth and when they sat in ashes, it was a demonstration of mourning. That grief came with conviction. Grief came as they confessed their sin. What's so interesting about verse five is that as big as Nineveh was, and Jonah being there, like taking him three days to do all of his stuff, when you look back at last week, It took Jonah three days to get to this place where he's like, I'm going to remember God, right? I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to surrender. And then God like spews him out of the fish. We see the pagans respond to the word of God immediately. Immediately. It took him three days. Took these pagans a day as they heard the word proclaimed. The grace of God humbles sinners. Number four, this is coming from verses six and eight. The grace of God brings revival. 
or six. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from his violence that is in his hands and call out mightily to God. Revival is the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men and women. And as we see the word of God begin to impact the people of Nineveh, it goes further and it starts to spread. It starts to spread to the point where it even gets to the king, to the point where the king is not only convicted, is not only humbled, does not only uh, demonstrate repentance, but issues like a citywide decree. He issues a citywide decree uh, proclaiming the God of the Bible to the rest of the city. Man, as soon as we start seeing hearts change and people jump on that gospel, we start to see it start to spread. And we're seeing that in Nineveh. We see that God takes hearts of stone. This is what, Ezekiel 36. He takes hearts of stone and he gives them hearts of flesh and then he doesn't stop there. In Ezekiel 36, he adds, and I will put my spirit in you. And so we see the people of Nineveh experience salvation and revival and it keeps going all the way to the king. And we understood how great this city was and so it gets to the king, he's like, Bro, this is serious. I want to worship God. I'm going to issue a decree. And he lets it go citywide. And he leads out of that. He doesn't just say, this is a good thing. You should probably look into it. There's this guy named Jonah. He has some tracts and pamphlets. What the king does is he takes ownership and he goes on to tell the whole city that we will repent. That we're not just going to confess, but we are going to repent of our sin. That we are going to mourn our sin that as a result of the word of God being proclaimed, we're going to grieve our sin because we have grieved a holy God. And there's more. So again, number four, the grace of God brings revival. Number five, this is from verse nine. The grace of God brings the assurance of hope in Christ. Look at verse nine. The king continues, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. That's a big statement. Conviction, confession, and repentance has overcome the king. And he puts himself in a position where he doesn't just want to be right in the sense of like, hey, now I've repented. That means you're not going to do anything, right, God? That's not even his motivation, His motivation for repentance is to be right and right standing with God. And he adds in verse nine, who knows? He might still wipe us out. That's not why we're doing this. We're doing this because we have sinned against a holy God. Like that's ownership of consequence. That's that's a people, a king who has made decrees before of, of horrific war crimes and celebrated those war crimes. And he takes ownership of his consequences. Hey, we're going to repent because we have sinned against a holy God. That doesn't mean that we're not going to be wiped out. But repentance is so that we would turn from our evil, the evil that's on our hands, and that we would be in right standing before the Lord, so that we would be humbled before the Lord, so that our eyes would look up to the Lord That's crazy. Now why does that bring us hope in Christ? It brings us hope in Christ because the king is leaving it up to hope. Maybe we won't get wiped out. Let's fast forward to us right now. That if we turn from our sin, we can place our trust, our faith in Christ alone. Why is that important? Christ has bore our sin on the cross on our behalf. The punishment that was over our head has now been satisfied by the Son of God. So you and I have a great assurance in Christ, more than the King. We have a better assurance. We have a promise 
That the wrath that was over us, the fence that actually separated us from God the Father, has now been removed because of the Son's work. You have an assurance of hope, certain hope. Not like the king. Maybe, we'll see. But in Christ, we have an assurance of hope because of Christ's finished work on the cross. Number six. Number six, the grace of God cannot be outworked by your sin. The grace of God cannot be outworked by your sin. This is a brief one in the sense of, man, look at the Ninevites. Look at the war crimes that they committed, the horrific things that they've done. And we see God pour his grace out onto these people so that they would come to know him and worship him. I know that, I want to say all, why not? All of you hear lies, right? That, man, at some point, God is just going to hit the eject button, right? Like he's done with you, right? Whether or not you know God. And if you really think about it, the lies we hear are about God to us. Let's go back to the garden. Eve and the serpent. What does the serpent essentially say? He opens up by saying, did God really say? I'm willing to wager that those are the same lies that you and I hear. I know they were the ones I hear. Did God really say you are forgiven? Did God really say you are redeemed? Did God really say you have been made new? Yes, he did. He literally said that you have been forgiven because we can look to the truth of his word and see that he says that by his blood you have been forgiven of your sins. We can see that we have been redeemed. That is, through his blood, we have been purchased out of our slavery to our sin. That means we now belong to him. It's not like he was surprised at who you were. He knew exactly what he was doing. He did say that you have been made new. He goes on to say the old has passed. Behold, the new is present. So put off the old self and put on the new self. Yes, God really did say that. You can preach that to yourself and it be biblical. God did say that. God did say that he was going to send his son, Jesus Christ, into human history to live the life that you and I cannot live, die the death that you and I deserve, and offer the grace that you and I cannot earn. And in addition to that, those who turn to him in repentance will experience no condemnation because they are in Christ Jesus. He literally says that. The grace of God cannot be outworked by your sin. Another way, you can't outsin God's grace. I mean, you can do business with that, but you just can't outsin God's grace. Number seven, the grace of God involves a better mediator than Jonah. Right? The grace of God, this is like when we do bomb it. When we do fail, like we can remember this because this is so good, right? The grace of God involves a better mediator than Jonah. What happened in chapter one? God said, hey, go to Nineveh. He's like, no, bro, I'm going to Tarshish. I want to go to Spain and run with the bulls. And what happens? Uh, a, a whole storm comes, tosses the boat. They toss him and gets swallowed by a fish over the course of three days, is humbled, and he's like, man, I'm ready, Lord, to forsake my idols and to follow you. Spits him out, go back to Nineveh, right? And he does so. He preaches repentance to the Ninevites reluctantly. He preaches them re- to them reluctantly with a five-word sermon, no sub-points, probably didn't rehearse it, had it in his wallet, wrote it on his arm kind of a thing, and says, Ninevites, don't forget to repent, Right? Like he just did it so he could say, yeah, right, like this is it, I'm done. And the Ninevites respond and they repent and their eyes are on the Lord. Just like assurance of hope in Christ, we here, us, have a better mediator than Jonah. 
the mediator that you and I have is Jesus Christ. That he stands and intercedes for us. Not just on the cross, but is interceding for you right now. In other words, he is going to bat for you to the Father. He is praying for you consistently, regularly, and all of the time. He intercedes on our behalf because we keep blowing it. But he's like, hey, I got you. Why? Because I've paid for that. That guilt, that shame, that sin, that thing that you said you weren't going to do anymore, but you did, I have paid for it on the cross. In fact, I became that sin on your behalf. I will go to bat for you. Hebrews 12 says that he endured the cross, our cross, for the joy that was on the other side. He did it on our behalf. The grace of God involves a better mediator than Jonah. I don't even know what number we're on. Number eight. The grace of God gives us good promises. When it comes to the grace of God giving us good promises, Jonah's parachuting into Nineveh. These are a people who hate God, who hate the people of God, who are all, all about impaling others, right? So we can safely assume maybe there's no, there's no Bible in there. There's no like Pentateuch. They don't have any of that. All they have is Jonah's five words, right? That's all they have. The grace of God gives us good promises because you and I have access to 66 books where God meets us where we are and reveals himself through his word. But we have better promises, we have better promises. What did they have? A dude who didn't want to be there. Number nine. The grace of God offers mercy. This is in verse 10. The grace of God offers mercy. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God didn't need Jonah. Let, let, let's just let that sink in real quick. In chapter one, we see how offended God is at the evil in Nineveh. We even hear about it again in chapter three. God did not need Jonah. If the Ninevites were as wicked as they are in the pages of history, he could have wiped them out long ago and Jonah would have never gone to Nineveh. Jonah was God's instrument of mercy. Jonah was God's instrument of mercy. Isn't that the gospel? Like, there's a prophetic contingency that comes with Jonah's message, right? Repent, or, uh, you know, you're going to get wiped off. Repent, or God's punishment, God's wrath will come on to you. Isn't that the gospel? Man, repent, turn to Jesus. He is ready to pardon any and all sinners who turn to him. And you will be saved. And you will be saved. That is the gospel. The difference here is that he's just using Jonah as his instrument of mercy. He is offering mercy to Nineveh. Those of you who are parents... When you tell your kids to not do something or to do something or they're experiencing consequences, um, one of the things we, we, we should do, right, is we offer them like these opportunities to turn back, to turn around, to repent, right? We offer them these opportunities, right? Like there's consequence on the other side, but I'm going to provide you with opportunities of mercy and repentance to turn away, right? Well, it's the same thing here. God offers Jonah, or God tells Jonah to go and preach repentance to a people who don't know God, and Jonah is his instrument of mercy. Jesus tells us the same thing. Jesus tells us, if you confess your sins, I am faithful to forgive and cleanse you of unrighteousness. That's the gospel. What number are we on? Ten. Sorry. 10. The grace of God enables us to proclaim the gospel to a watching world. 
Much like uh, the first point, the first truth where we had this like 50,000 foot view, verse ter- or number 10 also puts us at 50,000 feet. Because we get to imagine what God did through Nineveh. What kind of an example, what kind of a testimony was Nineveh to the watching territories, to the watching kingdoms? Everybody knew who Nineveh was. Uh, in the first week, I told you Nineveh was so great. It was like the center of all things going down. It was like the Paris, the New York, the Austin. It was the city to be in. And in addition to that, they committed some serious war crimes as forms of examples to tell you, if you mess with us, we're going to go to bat. And then God sends Jonah, and as Jonah goes, proclaims repentance, they turn from their evil way. What kind of a testimony was Nineveh to what God had done through them? What kind of a testimony was it? I don't know. It was pretty big. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But that's the same type of challenge, comfort, and conviction that we ought to have as the church. It's the same one. In Ephesians 3, uh, God through Paul says that God will make himself known through the church. He's going to make himself known through a broken people. He is going to make himself known through a broken people that he has redeemed. He's going to make himself known through a broken people that he has redeemed, that he has sent back into the place that they are in. All for his glory and so that his name would be proclaimed and so that more and more would come to know Jesus. The holidays are upon us, right? And that's no coincidence that the fact that we're in Jonah and that Thanksgiving is coming uh, your way. Because your houses, your apartments are going to be filled with friends and family, whether they're coming to you or you are going to them. That's the point. People are coming to you this holiday season, or you are going to people this holiday season. Proclaim the gospel. Make Jesus known. The grace of God enables us to proclaim the gospel to a watching world. Where you are is where you have been sent. Grace of God enables us to proclaim the gospel to a watching world. Those are 10 truths that we pull out from Jonah. So, how do we respond to them? And then how do we apply them? Two things, and we'll close our time. The first one is that we respond in humility. As you read through Jonah 3, as you listen to this sermon, as you write your notes, what is it that you, what is it that you are going to learn from the Ninevites? Are you, and I hope you do, that you respond like the Ninevites today, where you come to a place to recognize that the grace of God is your only hope? And that as a result of Jonah 3, we can stand firm in this beautiful promise that God responds to repentance. So put to death the us versus them. That I'm a Christian because I'm awesome and they're not. You may not necessarily articulate it that way, but our actions show differently. Put that to death. I want you to look at Matthew 12, Verse 41, last week we looked at Matthew 12, 40. This is Matthew 12, verse 41. This is what Jesus says. The men of Nineveh, he's, he's talking about the same people that we're reading about right now. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Here's what he's saying. That on the last day, It is the Ninevites who will condemn the Pharisees and the scribes. (laughs) That's baller and scary, right? On the last day, the Ninevites, the ones with this horrific type of history, 
the ones who repented in the pages of redemptive history, they are going to be the ones that condemn and judge the scribes and the Pharisees, the one who listened to Jesus' sermons over and over and over again and yet experienced no heart change. They are the ones that had books of the Bible memorized. They are the ones that read all the theology books and came to find out that they did not know Jesus. The Ninevites are going to be the ones who condemn them. What are we going to learn from the Ninevites today? How will we respond to God's grace today? Because the beautiful promise for you and me is that God responds to repentance. Number two, the joy of evangelism. So this is how we respond today. What we're going to do as we walk out of here, we're going to tell people about Jesus. We're going to tell people about Jesus. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to make disciples all to God's glory. And we're going to pray and that God would save them. Our friends, our families, our coworkers, the ones that you're thinking about right now that you don't want to, those are the ones. That's your Nineveh, right? That is your Nineveh. I want you to listen to Romans 9. This is Romans 9. This is the Apostle Paul. Here's what he says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, man, if I could lose my salvation so that my friends would know Jesus, I want that. Like there is grief in his heart. That is, that is friends who know the Bible and who have memorized books of the Bible and who are the scholars of their day. He is grieved that they do not know Jesus. That's some of us. But then there are those who just don't know Jesus because they weren't in the church. They just don't know Jesus. Do you grieve for them? Is your evangelism not just one of passion and obedience and humility, but is it one that has grief like the Apostle Paul? If I could give this up so that you would come to know Jesus, I would give it up right now. The Apostle Paul preaches with grief. He preaches with humility. He preaches the truth and he doesn't dance around it. And he's not doing it to be a jerk. He's doing it because he wants people to come to know Jesus. He's doing it because he wants hearts regenerated. He's doing it so that people would hopefully experience redemption so that they would no longer be slaves to their sin, but that they would serve Christ. That's his motivation. When we don't evangelize, we're doing a couple of things. When we don't evangelize, we deny God's sovereignty and we minimalize and privatize the mercy that he has given us. We do this ultimately because we're denying his plan for redemption. And it was good for us. It was good for the church. I don't know about them. I don't know about others. I don't know about the student next to me or my friends who are with me. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. And glorify God from here on out. I was going to say this week, but then I don't want you to be like, Pastor only said for a week. It's not for me, man. It is not for me. It is for the glory of God. It is for the glory of God. And as people make their way into your lives this year or this month and into December, make note of that too. They are making way into your life, not mine. So don't be like, well, I'm going to save the gospel for Sunday. No, you're not. Right? They're going to you. They're not coming to me. Right? The joy of evangelism. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. And glorify God. As we close, let's pray in confidence with the grace of God in Christ that is for us. Let us pray with that confidence. Let us pray with that confidence. 
on the foundation of that beautiful truth that I've been telling you, that God responds to repentance. Let's pray. God, as we close our time, man, Jonah is, uh, sometimes it's kind of a hard book to, to chew, and some of the truths that are in there, or the truth that is found in Jonah, it's kind of difficult to swallow. Because your glory, your might, your grace is made known through pagans. And the truth is, that ought to excite us. Revival ought to excite us. Seeing people who didn't know you come to know you ought to excite us. And if we're honest, often it doesn't. God, it doesn't because our hearts have become like Israel. Our hearts have become stubborn. Our hearts have become arrogant. Our hearts have been revealed by your grace and we don't like it. Holy Spirit, would you, would you do a work in us this morning? Would you continue with your grace to reveal our hearts? May the cry of our prayer be a reminder that you listen to repentance, that your grace is not stagnant, but that you continually pour your grace out onto us to make us more and more into the image of Jesus. God, when we look at the book of Jonah, may we be drawn to the beautiful promises that are in Christ, the better promises than the Ninevites had. May some of the the truths that we hear from your word sting us. May they sting us. May they convict us. But would you meet us where we are? So that we would be reminded of several things. So that we would be reminded that that we can't outsend your grace, so that we would be reminded that, that there's no condemnation for us, that, that we would be reminded that you have kept us. And as a result, we can respond in humility. As a result, we can walk out of this building this morning to proclaim your gospel for your glory and our good. God, as we continue to worship you in our time, we move towards tithes and offerings. And Lord, this is, this is where we give you our stuff. That this would continue to be a demonstration of our transformation and your glory. That we would give, you, give to you faithfully. That we would give to you generously. That our standard would be Christ on the cross where, where he gave everything. God, may we be encouraged that the gospel is being extended and is expanding outside of McAllen and our borders. But may we also be involved and excited at what the gospel is doing uh, here in our city. Nevertheless, Lord, may we give faithfully and sacrificially this morning. God, we love you and we thank you for this time. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.